0: Let's get this started. I'm incredibly grateful for the NEH grant that has allowed me to begin certain inquiries. What I offer tonight is a beginning, a start to a larger project. As a beginning, it promises to be nasty, brutish, and shortish. I was told to imagine you all naked as a way to mitigate my nerves. This would be a typical picture of the importance of imagination. However, Aristotle paints a picture that is much more robust, aiding both perceptual capacities and cognition. On the one hand, the picture of imagination painted in the the De seems rather straightforward. On the other hand, the imaginative capacity is deceptively hard to fully articulate. I believe that Aristotle provides enough of the argument to round out the image of imagination presented, but that will involve a degree of speculation on my part. In an important way, we can understand that imagination is the product of the process of perception and the condition for noetic activity. It is both a beginning and an end. Imagination is proto-cognitive and supra-perceptual. The task will be to disentangle imagination from perception and understanding so that we might see the proper unities that come to be. Actually, let me turn to a slide right now. Yeah, I'm also incredibly grateful for the two opportunities I had um, in the fall to study with colleagues and students. So the students, the animaniacs as I call them in my precept, were game for anything. They really paid careful attention to the text, and offered really many fruitful ideas on interpreting certain passages. So I'm grateful to them. And then, perhaps more importantly, I'm sorry, students, um, was the time I spent with my colleagues. Um, I was challenged. Um, in beautiful and surprising ways. Um, My colleagues showed me things in the text that I never would have seen. Um, The whole experience was one of great intellectual pleasure, which I consider the kind of highest form of pleasure. Um, So if you're sitting next to them, I hope they're nodding and not shaking their heads. But I can't guarantee which outcome will prevail. Many animals, we are told, live by imagination alone. One might expect imagination to be an integral part of any potential definition of soul, but the peculiarities of certain animal existence brings up the question of the relation between somewhat idiosyncratic particulars and the universal. Aristotle said that the universal as such had no real existence, and that if it was anything at all, it came after the individual thing. But if we regard the nature of animals from a different point of view, i.e. not as a universal, then it is indeed something real, and it precedes the individual animal as the potential precedes the actual. I would argue that there is a dialectic between universal and particular kinds that results in the refinement of the universal or the true definition. This is why, when examining the argument of the Dianna, one can find more than one definition of soul. We would hope that the definition of the essential property should reveal the character of the coincidence or accidents In the absence of easily finding a rule and method for learning the definition of the soul, examining the parts and attributes of particular kinds serves in the effort of understanding, as Aristotle indicates. So Aristotle says that knowing these coincidences contributes in great part to knowing the what it is, the TSD. For when we can give an account of all or most of these coincidences that is in accord with what appears so, we will then be able to speak best about the substance, the usea. The what it is is the end of a certain inquiry, but Aristotle also seems to want to say that the TST is the starting point of all demonstrations. It is clear that we need a common definition that is robust enough to apply to particular souls. We can test the common by an appeal to the particulars, but also refine the common in light of those particulars. I would like to begin to show, just begin to show, how the biological works of Aristotle are in dialogue with what many recognize as the more canonical works. How is our quest to find the essence of soul to start? We need a starting point, which is why we might want to carefully examine Aristotle's predecessors or get our hands dirty in the field looking at live specimens. We need to get, a better, we need to, get to better know what a this is in the context of the study of living things. This comes from the posterior analytics. From perception, memory comes to be. And from many memories of the same thing, experience. And from experience, or from the whole universal that has come to rest in the soul, and I think that's really important right there. The one over and above the many, this being whatever is present as one and the same in all of them, comes a starting point in archaic of craft knowledge and scientific knowledge. Of craft knowledge, if it concerns coming to be Genesis or of scientific knowledge if it concerns being. We rely on experience to discover or determine the starting points of inquiry. Experience gives us an eye to see correctly, especially in relation to prudence. But access to first principles is sometimes located in the activity of news. And I'm thinking both of the Nicomachean ethics, but really, more importantly, the metaphysics. And that's in contrast to the picture that he paints here in the posterior analytics. The science moves towards an attempt to grasp the substance of soul, while at the same time getting to the things which accrue to the substance. Does an examination of attributes flow into a real definition that is proper and essential to the thing? In trying to discover the nature of soul, are we starting in the wrong place? By turning to the Deonima, Putting to one side questions about the parts and capacities like the nutritive, the Deonima lacks detailed examples of an examination of parts of plants or animals in any great detail. However, as we've already seen to just two slides ago, The suggestion is that we can acquire a deep understanding of the essence of living things by a sustained and careful study of the coincidence and activities of living specimens. So should we at this point turn to the history of animals or the parts of animals or the progression of animals? Aristotle appeals to a a predecessor uh, to lend us some encouragement. And you as freshmen read this. It's uh, chapter five of book one of the parts of animals. Even as Heraclitus is said to have spoken to those strangers who wished to meet him, warming himself by the oven, he bade them enter without fear, for there are gods here too. So too, one should approach research about each of the animals without disgust, since in every one there is something natural and good. Let me just pause and say... It looks to me like one argument against Aristotle's predecessors is that they refuse to get their hands dirty. They don't look at the low. What they're mostly concerned with is human cognition and the human soul. Okay, here we go. Uh, Oh, no, now I have to back up, sorry. OK, I couldn't, help, I couldn't help putting this slide in. So some of you, I'm sure, have like traumatic experience in seeing this slide. This was the key to my understanding of the psychology of the republic. <laughs> Everything hinges upon this slide in my mind. And if you're interested, I'll, I'll be sure to tell you all the gory details. Um, here, okay, all right, here's the famous holothurian, the sea cucumber from my uh, preceptorial. This this took a starring role in the preceptorial. So Aristotle considered, considered for a long time the holothurian to be a plant-like animal, something that's largely stationary. So we have in, in our mind things like sponges, things like anemones. The sea cucumber... He thought for a long time was such a stationary animal until, and let's see how nervous I am. Hey, I'm not that nervous. Uh, this fecal trail. So you can see the, whole, the sea cucumbers moving in this direction and leaving a small fecal trail behind. So that was a clue to him that it wasn't quite a plant-like animal, even though he's tempted very often to um, group it with the plant like animals. And let me say this I don't say this in my lecture, but it should have a place. Uh, in book three of the Deonima, uh, Aristotle's just gone through an important discussion of the relationship between poetic news and passive news. And at the end of that chapter, he has a paragraph on imagination in plant like animals. And what he says is he says, they clearly have touch in the service of finding nutriment. But the suspicion is, and this is his word, they have imagination in an indeterminate way. So this is the kind of thing I'm interested in. What are the characters of the Holothurian that demonstrate a kind of imagination, even in an indeterminate way? But like I said... It comes at such a surprising moment in book three of the Deonima. It's really a kind of shock to me. But I, I have some thoughts, maybe in question period, we can talk about that. Um, Here, let's show, show some more. So the reason I'm showing these pictures, let me, let me, let me preface the, the slides by saying there's a clear argument that Aristotle lays out that... Um, imagination has everything to do with pleasure and pain. Not everything, but that's an important component. And so it especially means food. So here we have a limpet. He's identified a kind of mouth right here that he thinks is, uh, that that is able to um, distinguish between pleasure and pain of the food. So on the one hand, the argument goes, well, feeding is just about matching the ratio of the elements of the food to the ratio of the body. But there's a layer added on that, and that's pleasure. And imagination has everything to do with that, I think, in one part. There'll be what other aspects that admi- imagination plays a role in, but these examples just um, kind of are meant to highlight that. The fact that he's looking at things like limpets, and saying they take pleasure in food, and they're able to move across the rocks. Oops, sorry. They're able to move across the rocks, and they're a univalve, and they have a, an adaptation that allows them to lack that second shell because they cling very closely to the rocks. These things. I'll, let me say this parenthetically. These. For lots of mollusks, Aristotle says, those aren't real horns, they're just the result of material coursing up into the body. But with the case of the limpet, he thinks it's a kind of sensitive capacity. They have, the horns have become feelers of sorts. Uh, Here's an octopus, this is an octopus. So see, uh, let me say just a couple things parenthetically. He says, just, just as birds have beaks that are insufficient for chewing food, which requires a gizzard, so too the cephalopods lack the teeth necessary to process nutriment. And so they too have a gizzard, just like birds. So he draws a real functional comparison between birds and cephalopods for a number of reasons. The one distinguishing feature that cephalopods have, in contrast to birds, is they have this lip-like structure, which he was really impressed by. They must protect the teeth or the beak. Uh, and here's the tongue. So it's a kind of raspy tongue meant to scrape off the, favor, the, sorry, the flavor of prey items. So again, pleasure, the pleasures of animal life. This kind of horrifying picture is, uh, it's a, it's a um, Merluchius, it's, it's a hake, it's a European hake. So you see, here Here are its, oops, sorry, 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 so it's, you can see its front teeth right on its front deal arch, but when you look down the mouth, you see teeth embedded in the throat. The argument Aristotle makes with respect to the function of those things is to hold the prey item in place in the throat so it can take pleasure in the flavor of the prey item. So he looked at the teeth and he said, what's the the purpose of those? On the one hand, he said, it's to secure the prey, but more importantly, it's for the sake of pleasure. So the teeth become something for the sake of pleasure. Uh, This, okay, so this is a diplodos, a sarg. Um, And I'll I'll just note, this isn't a very good picture because of the tongue, Uh, you can't really see the tongue. Uh, But it's got a small, relatively um, movable tongue. Same thing, if it has a tongue, Aristotle claims, it's most likely for the sake of uh, pleasure. Um, But I do want to point, just parenthetically, even though it doesn't really have anything to do with imagination, the fact that there's a double set of teeth. These teeth scrape the invertebrates off the solid surfaces, and these teeth grind those bodies to mix with the mouth and uh, increase the pleasure of eating. Do I have any more? Okay, all right, okay. Okay, um, this is shocking. Um, this, this is not the best picture I have. I, I can't believe I couldn't find the best picture I have. But in any case, so you have this red mullet here. He's using these chin barbels to probe the sand for invertebrates. This raft is going along with him. And right here is usually, and in pictures I have, a sar covering the kind of side flank. So it looks like it's a heteroaggregation for feeding. So these organisms are feeding as a path, but they're species of a different kind. My suspicion is an activity like this necessarily requires imagination, as I hope to demonstrate. So that's just a, a, by way of... Um, setting the ground in terms of the biological particulars, but then also trying to telegraph um, which way the argument kind of unfolds. Okay. Where am I now? No? Yeah, here we go. Um, So those... Those examples come largely from the parts of animals, but also the history of animals. So if I were to glean a definition of soul from the parts of animals, it would read thus. And nature as substantial being is both nature as mover and nature as end. And it is a soul, either all of it or some part of it is in such, in an animal's case. This articulation of soul stresses motion and presumably the local motion highlighted by many of his predecessors and final cause. It leaves out features such as nutrition, sensation, and thought. Of course, we can surmise how we might get to such attributes through motion and final cause, but I would note the definition also leaves out desire and, for my purposes, imagination because many animals live by imagination alone. That's the constant refrain in the back of my mind. But there are important topics that are missing in the parts of animals and the history of animals. For, in, for example, intelikea only occurs, uh, it occurs uh, uh, I think three times in the parts of animals, and it doesn't occur once in the history of animals. But whatever intelikea points to, is somehow at the the heart of the dam. Looking beyond the biological works to the metaphysics, Aristotle offers this the soul of animals, for this is substance of the animate, is the substance that is in accord with the account and is the form and essence of such and such sort of body. This is to correct the notion that some of his predecessors put forward that any type of soul could be placed in any sort of body. According to Aristotle, there is a fittingness between an appropriate body and a soul. The nod to the body in the metaphysics points to the fact that for Aristotle, every natural body participates in life as a composite substance. This points to Aristotle's commitment to matter, form, composites, or a kind of hylomorphism in his account. It might strike one as peculiar to emphasize the place of body in the metaphysics, unless you think about metaphysics data, where it's really the matter being the kind of individuating principle. Chamarki will tell me if that's right. Darcy Thompson, the great student of Aristotle and the father of biological morphometrics, provides an interesting view on what plagues many of us in trying to understand Aristotle. Like warp and wolf, mechanism and teleology are interwoven together, and we must not cleave to the one nor despise the other, for their union is rooted in the very nature of totality. We may grow shy or weary of looking to a final cause for an explanation of our phenomena, but after we have accounted for these on the plainest principles of mechanical causation, it may be useful and appropriate to see how the final cause would tally with the other and lead toward the same conclusion. And I would recommend Darcy Thompson's book On Growth and Form. It's really a masterpiece when it comes to like balancing those two things. He's on the one hand arguing against the Darwinists and on the other hand arguing against the peer mechanists. It's a really masterful book. Hans Jonas, a thinker whose work is permeated by Aristotle, and you might have read in Freshman Lab, I don't know if we still do that. Jonas makes a remark that has an important bearing on this discussion. There seems to obtain a rather paradoxical situation. On the one hand, the living being is a composite of matter And at any time, its reality totally coincides with its contemporary stuff. That is, with one definite manifold of individual components. On the other hand, it is not identical with this or any such simultaneous total. And it really is not bound to the assemblage making it up now, as this is forever vanishing downstream in the flow of exchange. In this respect, it is different from its stuff and not the sum of it. We have thus the case of a substantial unity enjoying a sort of freedom with respect to its own substance and independence from that some matter of which it nonetheless wholly consists. And I think he's glossing Aquinas in this. I'm pretty sure. Um, But I'm not positive. Tamarco can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Jonas locates us thinking about the paradox in organismal metabolism. In an important way, the imaginative capacity presents a similar paradox in relating the perceptual and the noetic. So the relationship between the perceptual and the noetic, that's kind of what, uh, in general, um, my thoughts about imagination could be understood um, trying to articulate. There are, however, Aristotelian statements regarding the substance of soul that bracket material. I love this one. This comes in Book 3 of the Anima. The soul is, in a way, all the beings, ta'anta. Of course, and he, he has in mind noose, of course, when he's saying that, but also perception and perceptual capacity. Um, noetic activity Actively, none of the beings before it understands them. So it can't become them until it actively understands them. Otherwise, it's just potential and kind of colorless the way that the eye is colorless before being struck by a special perceptible. Uh, But this strikes me as drawing together the psychological and the ontological Insofar as this suggestion might rely on Noose's ability to act as a form of forms, it seems best applicable to the human soul. We might think of the sea cucumber as having the totality of the beings it has access to, given its perceptual and imaginative capacities. The ontology of sea cucumbers would differ fundamentally from that of human beings who have a much richer access to the world. The clue to this lies in the fact that the great Holothurian metaphysical masterpiece is entitled Being in Tide. While noting that matter individuates form, it might be helpful to continue to bracket the issue of matter in certain stages of our inquiry. Insofar as, living, insofar as a living thing is immaterial, it is free from the restriction of matter and has a certain width and infinity so that it is not merely this particular subject, but in a certain sense, it is other things as well. We can anticipate and note that perception and understanding are free to become other things, things in the material or immaterial worlds. The soul is somehow all things. The imaginative capacity plays an important role in the organism's movement through the world and becoming all beings. I know I've said something like that a couple of times without any proof. So I'm just trying to, in a way, lay the groundwork for these um, seemingly intractable problems, or difficult problems, or paradoxical problems. Lay them out, insert a footnote, or a promissory note to myself, that this is where imagination comes in. So we'll get to that shortly. Um, many readers of Aristotle point to the following as the definition of soul in the, the Anima. The soul is the first actualization of a natural body that has life potentially. This definition might be one in which we get the most common account is the way he introduces it. This emphasis on the most common account might be in reference to widening out the argument from the perspective of the pre-Socratic natural philosophers that dominated book one of the Deonima to something more approachable although that is difficult for me to see. It might also indicate a move from the opinions of the specialized philosophers to a concern with what people might say or recognize. And again, that's hard for me to see, given the nature and quality of that definition. How is that going to be a common definition for all people? Um, It might indicate a move from the opinions of the, oh, sorry. Another interpretation would be to say that the most common account has to refer to non-human animals and plants. That scope would be to give a common account of a certain class of natural bodies. We see better the concern with otherwise overlooked non-human animals, things like sea cucumbers on the one hand, and the importance of body on the other, which its predecessors might be accused of neglecting. Life, according to Aristotle, distinguishes a certain class of substantial natural bodies, and its definition includes self-nourishment, growth, and decay at that point. So that's a kind of, again, I I should have put that up on the thing. So self-nourishment, movement, and decay. In the argument leading up to the definition of soul as first entelechy, Aristotle prepares the way by saying that every natural body that participates in life would be a substance, but a substance as a composite. One might think that living body is what distinguishes Aristotle in a particular way. However, I would argue a more proper account of the predecessors would find that several, especially Democritus but also Empedocles, offer embryonic, hylomorphic accounts that I suspect Aristotle learned a lot from. It's important to note, that's another paper. I have a whole project set up for that. It is important to note that Aristotle adds to the off-pointed two definition a concern with a natural instrumental body. This reminds us of body and brings to the fore the issue of whole parts. The instrumental or functional is to point to the connection the ta erga have to dunamis, entelecheia, and energea, something I will just touch upon. Aristotle reminds us that living is what distinguishing, distinguishes living things with soul. So he repeats a, fra- a refrain like that many times throughout the book. So I'm trying to follow along with him every time you repeat that phrase to see, okay, what comes next in the argument, right? It's a kind of starting point. The starting point is li- living is what distinguishing living things and especially in soul natural bodies. Manifestations of living, Aristotle says, include understanding, perception, movement, and rest with respect to place and the movements involved in nourishment. One is tempted to say that there is no soul without the things enumerated here. With a promise to discuss nutrition and perceptual capacities later, Aristotle offers what might consider yet another definition of soul. So this is maybe the fourth definition of soul added to Aristotle, and this is something I'd also like to explore, is count up the definitions of soul in the Deonima and determine which ones do what kind of work for the particular argument. So here, this is the one we have at 413. For now though, let this much alone be stated the soul is the starting point of the, of the things we mentioned and is defined by these, namely by the capacities of nourishment, perception, thought, and movement. And that's something we all kind of recognize, right? We, on the one hand, recognize the first centellic argument, and on the other hand, we recognize this argument with respect to nourishment and movement and perception and thought. It is suggested that the soul is divided into these four genera and that the substance of the soul is to be found in these principles. This is to expand and refine the predecessor's understanding of the nature of soul being motion and perception and understanding. The activities of anything correspond to its being. We have to study vital activities precisely in the living beings which display them. Obviously, not every living being body needs all these manifestations. However, the, here, and here we go. Here we go, now we'll get into the meat of the paper. However, the capacity of touch provides a foundation with respect to animals. A cascade of activities and capacities is generated with the emergence of touch. If a living being has at least touch, a desiring, a rexus part or capacity is generated. Desire, or orexus, includes appetite, epithumia, spiritedness, thumos, and wish, bulesis. Aquinas provocatively suggests that this tripartite arrangement of desire points to the concupiscible appetite, the irascible appetite, and the intellectual appetite. Desire, or appetite, provides a bridge of sorts between the sensitive and the intellectual desires what unifies the perceptual and the intellectual insofar as it's distributed. And Aristotle, let me, let me pause and just say parenthetically, he says in this context, oh yeah, you know the psychology articulated in the Republic? it shot through with desire in every single layer. And I really appreciated that claim um, in terms of the argument of the Deon on the one hand, but also in terms of the argument of the republic on the other. Imagination will follow the exact same path in uniting the perceptual and the cognitive or noetic. And at this point, Caswell will scream out, that's schematism, <laughs> but it's not. Touch contains a multiplicity of contraries, unlike the other perceptual capacities, which makes it capable of discerning what is necessary to a body containing the elements. In one way, food always seems to be the contrary of what is fed. Food becomes the latter, and becoming is the generation of one thing to its contrary. Sound, color, odor have nothing to do with the pleasure of food per se. I'm sneaking in here the issue of pleasure, anticipating a certain movement of the argument. The capacity for touch could, one might say, be in the service of a lower grade activity. In other words, perception, and this this is not so surprising, but if I mean it might be surprising at first glance. Perception might be in the service of a lower faculty, nutrition. Um On the other hand, the parts and capacities of the soul follow each other in a series-like kinds of geometrical figure. The potential for the quadrilateral lies in the triangle. This recognition of the emergence of desire leads to the suggestion that flavor is one of the objects of touch, and namely taste. So, right, he's conflating touch and taste, and he'll do that in important ways. Um... On the other hand, flavor is an indication that there is a proper balance of the elements for nutrition. On the other hand, it points to pleasure and pain. On the one hand, it it indicates what's good for the organism. It's apparent good. On the other hand, there's pleasure in consuming that. Pain and pleasure come from external sensation. Pleasure is an indication of what is materially good for the organism. But one might say that pleasure is super added to the perception of food as containing a proper ratio of elements. And in part, I have the argument about potentially different species of pleasure um, kind of analyzed in Plato's Philebus, whether you just have pleasure and it's a one thing and what differentiates it are the activities to which it supervenes. Or are there fundamentally different kinds of pleasures? And I I, I can ask that, I think, um, in uh, this context, too, with respect to animals. The pleasure of eating for one organism, is it really the same pleasure of playing or of hunting, um, on the other hand? In the context of discussing how one capacity is generated by the presence of a perhaps more primordial capacity, we are startled with the introduction of imagination. That took a while. If we were to follow the train of thought, the imaginative capacity might be generated like the desiring part with the activity of touch coming online. Pursuing this, we would be in search for a genetic account. This would make imagination near the foundation of animal life. Perception and, in particular, touch Supply the necessary but not sufficient conditions for the emergence of imagination. This genetic account might supply the elements of the argument for the claim that many animals live by imagination alone. This claim can be put aside as a suggestion in the metaphysics. The other animals live by appearances, fantasies, products of the process of imagination, and memories, and have but a small share in experience whereas humankind lives by craft knowledge and rational calculations. So, see, in the metaphysics, there's really no mention of perception, which is kind of surprising to me, right? In other words, imagination seems to take the role of perception. If I'm just thinking about this in general, I think, well, I have understanding, experience, and craft knowledge on the one hand, I should have perception on the other. It's not. It's imagination for Aristotle in the context of the metaphysics. Um... One wonders what imagination adds to the life of the organism. Imagination animates organisms like ants and bees, but not grubs, according to Aristotle. Pointing to social organisms like ants and bees might be to suggest that communal life is also a condition for imagination. This would be to make partial sense of Aristotle's claim that, and this is a new turn in my argument, so let me introduce something new. This would make partial sense of Aristotle's claim that animal voice, phoné, and presumably the means by which things like ants communicate, involves some imagination. So, phoné involves some imagination. And he says, let's see if I have that slide. A phoné is an indication of what's pleasant or painful, which is why it is possessed by the other animals, for their nature goes this far. They not only perceive what is pleasant or painful, but also indicate them to each other. But rational speech is for making clear what is beneficial or harmful, and hence also what is just and unjust. And this is the thing that I worry about, Uh, this, the perception of pleasure and painful. I really need to know what kind of perception is is that. Is that a perception of a special perceptible, or some nebulous understanding of the common perceptible. So, I'll return to that. I'm just babbling. Um, Animals might perceive what is pleasant or painful, but not in the same way pale is sensed by sight. So pale is the special perceptible for sight. Here in the Dianema, we see how imagination might play a role in the communication of of the pleasant between animals. The Dianema account fills out this picture in hinting at imagination's necessary role in animal voice and the communication of the pleasant. But appearances, fantasia, are mostly false. He says that four different times in the Dianema. Perceptions are always true in the context of the Dianema. Again, what good is imagination and its phantasms to animal life, given their status of being sometimes false? Now, outside of the Deionma, there is a the suggestion that what appears to be perception can, can in fact be false, which is in direct contradiction to or needs some work to put alongside the claim in the Deionma. When persons turn away from looking at objects in motion, for example, rivers, and especially those which flow very rapidly, things really at rest are then seen as moving. And he's got another example. What time is it? I'm babbling. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'll I'll, I'll speed up. Imagination, it might be surmised, has shaped, in a sense, the perceptual input. The motion that we mistakenly perceive is not a special object of a particular sense capacity, but common. Those that are said to be common are movement, rest, number, shape, and size, since things like these are special to no perceptual capacity, but common (coughs) to all. For indeed, movement is perceived by touch and sight. So the common perceptible movement is perceived by touch and sight. If anybody's got a good example or kind of an account of that, I'd love to hear it. I have a kind of tentative account of that. Some organ or capacity processes the results of the special objects of perception in order to determine the common. I suspect that there might be room for imagination in this higher level processing along the lines of recollection, as I will immediately make clear. There is a way in which the predecessors were on the right track in highlighting locomotion, which could be used as the foundation of a definition of soul. For the soul is a cause, an archae, as that from which the movement comes, and as that for the sake of which, and as the substance of animal bodies. Aristotle adds an appeal to final cause, because at a basic level, animals move toward nutrient. The object that is viewed as either pleasant or painful, according to Aristotle's account in the movement of of animals, is the origin of motion. Of necessity, he says. The thought, the noisy and fantasia of these pain and pleasure. Things. So the fantasia of pain and pleasure are accompanied by heating and chilling. For the painful is avoided and the pleasant pursued, and the thought and fantasia of the painful and pleasant are nearly always accompanied by chilling and heating, although we do not notice this when it happens in a small part. Um, in this analysis, Aristotle was careful to give the account of the heating and chilling of material as is fitting the natural science prop- scientist properly understood in the discussion of matter-form composites. Perception might not be adequate in determining the potential pain or pleasure of the object of perception. Sight can indicate whiteness or paleness, but not the potential pleasure of consuming the object. The phantasms of imagination for animals without higher cognitive capacities direct the ensouled body to pleasant food and away from pain. A constellation of things occur in animal motion. For the affections, tapate, suitably prepared the organic parts. Desire prepares the affects, and imagination prepares the desire and fantasia comes about either through thought or through sense perception. The passions condition the parts, desire conditions the passions, and imagine, imagination conditions desire. This partial account of animal motion might help us understand in earlier passages in the De Anima. While reading, uh, and uh, While reading an earlier argument about anger, which seems to be a particular type of motion, has to be understood as both a boiling of the blood around the heart and as the desire for retaliation. Aristotle says that to say that the soul is feeling angry is like saying that the soul is weaving or building, for presumably it's better not to say that the soul is feeling pity or learning or thinking, but rather that the human being is doing so by means of soul. And this is not because the movement is in the soul, but because sometimes it reaches as far as the soul and sometimes begins from it. For example, perception begins from particular things, while recollection begins from the soul and extends to the movements or traces in the perceptual organs. We are presented with a two-way street where information goes upstream and downstream. Recollection affects the way in which we perceive and feel. Recollection, in its reach, touches and alters the movement of the perceptual organs. Something internal to the soul impacts perceptions and its organs. One might say the formal activity shapes the material. Evidence for this is supplied by Aristotle's observation that sometimes, though nothing frightening is occurring, people have people come to have the affections of a frightened person. While one could insert recollection as potentially responsible, this, I think, undoubtedly points to the power of imagination. My suspicion is that imagination, like recollection, moves from the soul to affect the perceptual organs. When a living being turns away from a fast-moving stream it still sees yet seems to see still objects as if they were in motion, the imagination is a likely culprit in this phenomenon. It's important to note that movement is numbered among the perceptible, I'm sorry, the common perceptibles, which are thought to be perceived by reciprocal workings of two or more of the simple perceptuals or by a primary sense organ. I speculate that imagination, in addition to aiding in the discernment of the pleasant and painful, might be behind the perception of the so-called common perceptible. That's a big claim. I, I really need to be challenged on that. We can use the notion of function to help us better understand how things might shape up. The tongue, for human beings, has double function. It's used in the service of taste, involving the pleasure of flavor, and for logos, which is said to be for the sake of living well. There are what we might term higher and lower functions of one and the same part or capacity. Regarding taste, Aristotle notes that human taste is more exact because it is a sort of touch, and this perceptual capacity is most exact in a human being. The tongue's connection to the fineness of human touch explains its power. And humans are wisest of the animals because of the sensitivity of touch. Likewise, we might conclude that imagination has what I am calling low and high functions. Imagination might touch upon the material workings of perception, but also be necessary for the highest human capacities. It might be fruitful at this stage to, again, start again. It has been shown how it seems to be generated soon after it, namely imagination. Uh, uh, has been shown shown how it seems to be generated soon after touch, but it plays a role in other c- perceptual capacities. In a sort of summing up, at the same time hinting at the extension of the argument, Aristotle says, uh, "For each perceptual organ is receptive of the perceptible object without matter. That is why perceptions and, empir- and, empir- and appearances." remain in the perceptual organs even when the perceptible objects are gone. We can note that this brings imagination and perception close together, perhaps anticipating certain moves in the argument. This reminds us of the argument regarding recollection, that it moves from the soul to affect the perceptual organs. The object is held in view by, in part, an imaginative capacity, Imagination aids in the real workings of animal uh, perception. But as he reminds us, perceptions are always true, whereas most appearances are false. Just as sensations arouse appetitive impulses while the sensed object is present, so do phantasms when these are absent. Thus, imagination largely determines the behavior of animals. Imagination and perception are also brought together closely by movement. But since when something is moved, another thing can be moved by it. And since imagination seems to be a sort of kinesis and seems not to take place without perception, but rather to take place in things that perceive and to be of those things of which perception is... And since it is possible for movement to come about as a result of the activity, and sanerdeus, of perception, which movement must be like the perception, this movement could neither come about without perception nor could it belong to a non-perceiving thing. And it is possible for what has it to do and be affected by many things in accord with it and for it to be either true or false. Tying imagination and perception together by means of movement, kinesis, and activity, energias, is yet another way to see the connection. In soul bodies orient their movement in and around their world by means of the movement of imagination and the activity of perception. But imagination, as presented in this analysis, is the product of perceptual activity. One might call this the kinetic account of imagination. Kinesis, we are told, is a movement that is distinguished from other activities in not being complete. One might suppose that the activity of perception initiates imagination, but also that imagination in a certain important sense completes the movement of perception while also introducing the possibility of error. For about the fact that something is pale, perception cannot be false. But about whether this or something else is a pale thing, it can be false. The example he uses all the time is the son of Cleon. Perception does not determine thisness. I suspect imagination helps play a role in such a determination, which could explain in part why our discernment of thisness can be false. Imagination is the product of the activity of the special perceptibles. However, Aristotle suggests elsewhere that uh, an appearance of phantasmata is an affection, a pathos, of the common perceptual capacity. It's perhaps, it's, it's shocking to me. It's, it's, I was gonna say it's perhaps a little surprising. It's not perhaps a little surprising. It's really shocking to me that there's really simply no account of the common perceptual organ or capacity in the Deonima. The thing, I mean, it's just, it, the, the, the the notion occurs just a handful of times, and it's always occurring in the context of avoiding it, if, if I can say that. It is, unless um, he, so I don't know what happens to the common perceptual capacity. I, I kind of know the argument for the parts of the animals, and we can talk about that in the question period, but it, 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 It it doesn't really solve all the problems that I recognize. Um, The imaginative capacity and the primary sense capacity might point to the same power. This is a tempting move to make. How do I envision this working? Movement, one of the common perceptibles, is determined by touch and sight. What if the imagination held the phantasm of touch or feel of an object? Together with what is gleaned through sight, the phantasm of the feel of an object changing position in time is then laid over the color white to determine the object moving toward me as the son of Cleon. Imagination is connected to bodily activities of perception, but also with understanding. The soul never understands without a phantasmata. So it really is... the Fantasy and phantasmata supply the raw material for noetic activity. Imagination for creatures with noose supplies the raw material for the activity of thinking. But what about organisms that are, according to Aristotle, without noose? The part that understands then, understands the forms and the appearances. And as in the previous case, what is to be pursued or avoided is distinguished for it. And so even outside of perception, when it is dealing with appearances, phantasmaton, it is moved to pursuit or avoidance. For example, perceiving the beacon because it is fire by the common perceptual capacity, seeing it moving, it recognizes that it is the enemy. But sometimes by means of the appearances or intelligible objects that are in the soul, it calculates and deliberates about future things on the basis of the present ones. Uh, that comes in chapter six of book three of the Diana. Phantasms are the product of imagination and the stuff of news. You've heard me say that 15 times. The argument seems to be that the information regarding whether something should be pursued or avoided is, is is within the phantasms. Phantasms also contain the necessary material to decide about things that should be done in the future. In soul bodies living without the power of news might find embedded in the products of imagination information about what is to be pursued or avoided. In other words the imaginative capacity might play the role of noose for many animals. Imagination might contain information about thisness, pleasure and pain, and the future. This, I suspect, is what Aristotle's Lost Treatise on Imagination would say once it is found next to the volume on his work on comedy. But what is the being of imagination? Is it simply one species of cognition or some infrequently discussed aspect of the perceptual capacity? There is a puzzle that is perhaps only deepened by Aristotle's claim that there is the imaginative part, the being for which is distinct from all of the others, although which of them it is the same and which it is distinct from involves much puzzlement if we were to separate parts of the soul. I love that. Aristotle makes this claim in revisiting a topic that has plagued thinkers since the time of Pythagoras and Heraclitus. How does the soul move the animal body? Understanding and desire are both candidates for the sort of local motion, but goal-directed motion involves imagination and desire. For various reasons, the understanding part drops out as a candidate of local motion. Even when understanding what is good and or bad, we don't move. So even in understanding those things, we're not moved, he says. But frustratingly, this is not the last word regarding understanding and local motion. Do I have this? No. Shoot. Sure. Apparently, at any rate, these two things do cause movement, either desire or understanding, if we posit the imagination as a sort of understanding. Uh, We were prepared for such a move in the argument in fact, such a notion was entertained at the very beginning of the account. Knowing is said to be most of all special to the soul. But Aristotle entertains the notion that knowing might be a sort of imagination. Yeah. Or does not exist without imagination. Then it would not be possible even for it to exist without body. Understanding connection to imagination gets complicated when that connection seems to be dissolved for the sake of what Aristotle calls practical thought, practical nu. In regards to locomotion, the argument seems to move from the understanding to the understanding as a species of imagination to practical news. Within the, within the, the, the context of like 30 lines of text, that's the movement. Ultimately, there is one thing Aristotle claims that causes motion, and that's the desire. But I would argue that while desire is about the present, about moving the organism to the apparent good, imagination adds another layer of temporality in in introducing a concern with the future. While I do not wish to address here the obvious importance of desire for animal life, it is important to note that a desiring part, however, cannot exist without imagination, and all imagination is either rationally calculative, logisticae, or perceptual, estheticae. Imagination is the necessary precondition for the exercise of desire. And as we have seen, imagination is the necessary precondition for noetic activity. The argument reaches a peak when Aristotle says that perceptual imagination... Aesthetica fantasia, as we have said, also belongs to other animals, but the deliberative sort exists in the rationally calculative ones. Putting aside the fact that we have never heard this before, it is important that despite the fact that imagination seems to be the of perception, imagination is now modified by the aesthetic. So in other words, it's generated by perception, but now perception is the thing that's modifying um, the imaginative. The argument moves from the source of imagination to that source being used as a modifier. Deliberative also seems to similarly qualify imagination in another form. Animals, insofar as they have appetite, it is necessary that it move itself in virtue of that intention. No appetite exists without imagination, for everything which imagines either has that phantasm for by which it is moved from sense, or it has it from cogitation. The discussion of pleasure and pain, animal voice, local motion, perception, and cognition results in a formula that is hard to pin down as simply a hybrid of two independent subjects— Either perception or understanding with imagination. Instead, we're left with an inseparable unity which we might suspect is at the heart of animal life. Thanks for listening.